Hello everyone, this is Jeremy. I have a solo episode. Sam is somewhere in the snow in Tennessee right now and celebrating perhaps what is an early birthday with some intimate uh, housemates and his pod down there. And so I'm going to bring you another delightful, by delightful I mean uh, put my head and heart in a tailspin a little, but more history. More history. So, I've been reading this uh, history book called The Pursuit of Glory. Europe, 1648-1815 by a Cambridge professor, uh, Tim Blanning. And so, this is part of a uh, series from Viking Press. And it's a big book. It is, let's see, when we get, yeah, over uh, the, about 700 pages. And I have been enjoying the fact that uh, it tells a lot about everyday life. And... As someone who's always been a history nerd, I have, uh, you know, we're usually regaled and, of course, uh, propagandized by the heroic and magical stories of fancy people who generally have access to resources, power, uh, rulerships. And then we forget about what was, for the most part, most of our ancestors, which could have been uh, peasants in in modern-day Poland or Russia or France or southern Italy or the Mediterranean or anywhere in the Mediterranean, let alone somewhere outside of Europe beyond the Urals in Asia or the Americas. So I am really doing the work of trying to better understand the likelihood of the, the life cycle of my ancestors especially the ones that may have made a choice to leave Europe and come to uh, the colonies, namely uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania in the 1600s and then the 1700s. And so the first thing Professor Blanning gets to is how shitty travel was None of the pavement, none of the cobblestones, most of those pretty, pretty laid cobblestones you see were lucky uh, that in London they might be 19th century. Some of them might be 18th century, but outside the city, the the fact that we can travel so easily and quickly is a 20th century thing, truly. Most of the things that we take for granted have been here for a hundred years or less. How quickly everything goes? Definitely in the past 100 years. And I used to think that one, you know, being a child of the 80s and 90s, a hundred years, oh, the 1880s, the 1890s, and now we're already at the 1920s, fully in the 20th century after World War I, and that's a hundred years when cars began, began, uh, became ubiquitous, sort of, 
But this is only the in the cities and the suburbs. We have to remind ourselves where people come from. And the pattern that, for example, this author talks about, until the 19th century, most people were, were working uh, on rented farmland. And that was the same thing in colonial America, too. Most of our ancestors, there's a pretty good chance they were farmers uh, because the population is the population uh, is in favor of that or the other roles that you're in bureaucracy for some uh, local or uh, uh, state head is also possible and then we think about how this gets into uh, what they would call the orders or in France the estates general, which is just class stuff. You know, the Romans, as I said in the previous episode, said give them bread and give them their gladiators and they won't pay attention to what the senators are doing. And they, and in Europe, they often kept that true. If you gave the peasants enough alcohol to keep them breeding and to keep them working on the fields... That has an uncanny similarity to uh, the making of the American agricultural force. And um, the serfs barely got paid, especially if you were east of Poland or Prussia, as it was called in the 18th century. And yeah, there were plenty of towns and maybe some of our ancestors were craftsmen folks and they made shoes or they made uh, 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 textiles uh, before or after the factory revolution which was really uh, the thing uh, there was a really interesting chapter on how cotton overtook wool but it definitely depended on getting materials and, and beginning to grow materials that are not native to Europe and then not not native uh, or easily grown in European climates. So there was a lot of uh, experimentation and struggle during the time that our ancestors may have thought of becoming a radical Puritan and jumping ship and getting to Massachusetts, like someone's family um, of a friend, a boyfriend of one of my good friends has the last name of a, a, a Mayflower person. And I know other friends who, who can trace back to Mayflower. I may trace to some, some guy, some fancy guy who lived in Jersey um, who decided to move to Virginia in the 1600s. So my fascination is just knowing that as much as I studied the culture through the music and the art of this period, that again we're looking at not a large percentage of people and not and these people uh, especially the patrons of Michelangelo or say Monteverdi or other composers and artists sculptors, muralists, uh, that these were people with power and they didn't always act nicely about it. 
and they had plenty of entrenched religious or uh, hereditary uh, propaganda for why they should be there. This is especially onerous with the clergy. I'm still in the middle of reading a chapter on how the tithes really broke some peasants' uh, accounts that they had to give a tenth, which, when some of these authors in the 18th century were writing about, the these peasants are working very hard, and they've already got a this tax, and this is due, and this percentage of the crops goes to the the duke, or the marquis, or the or the or the you know sergeant general up in Prussia. They go to the local landlord, who's nobility. And the nobility has to wrangle around with a king, or emperor, or whoever is, or has become the singular center or uh, uh, the top dog in a kingdom or uh, in a commonwealth. So the political ramifications and the socio-political ramifications are um, distressing because it still feels like we get somewhere but that the elite always have a way of still carving out what they need in order to live their separate fantasies, their lives of uh, leisure and or uh, adventures, adventures in their wealth, adventures with their uh, resources. And some of them did good work. For example, Lady Diana Spencer's family was known to be pretty progressive. But sometimes, you know, you have only uh, new thoughts and new ideas, especially in the 18th century, that got someone like uh, Emperor Joseph, uh, the Habsburg, who was ruling when Mozart was writing his great works, that there was really going to be a reform. And a lot of it, and where I am in the book for now, stay tuned, was about the 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 masses of farmers and the revolts that were going on and that there were you know everyone knows that there was revolution in France but that was complicated because you you would think that there is some logical set that the poor people would want revolution and certain people would not want revolution the rich wouldn't want revolution and the poor wouldn't but it's also the way of life getting disrupted so you find that our assumptions will, won't be true. That there may be peasants who were just horrified that everything was going to go down, down under and they'd be flushed down the drain. It's bad enough you think that every other day. But... So a lot of this project of me reading these histories, these European histories, and thankfully not getting the same let's all worship the Habsburgs and let's all worship the American presidents and let's all worship... who? Why are we doing this? You know? These are human beings with their belief systems. And then, you know, one of our ancestors is some Italian duke or some... 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 Uh, uh, inherited sheriff's family on the Isle of Jersey or some local lord in Prussia or Russia 
and the stories turn as we get more individualized, the stories of families. There was a really cool story about how this English traveler was mentioning how many serfs could be um, taken up in a Russian aristocrat's household. Because, depending, if you like the people, if you like some of these people, that's a determination. If you saw they did better work as a musician, the serfs would be musicians. There's terrible stories of the the lord of an estate um, punching up uh, opera singers or musicians or actors because they don't do well. Uh, so thinking about how artists, depending on where you were and what century, you already had a, you were already considered a servant unless there was an exceptional story there. For example, um, it is, I think we just passed Handel's birthday. So Handel's uh, dad was a barber surgeon. So before medical uh, roles changed, really from what we know in the 19th century is what we're used to, this doctor with associations and standardized training. But the doctors, the functional doctors, where you would get your teeth pulled if something was rotting or your teeth were bad or or get bled a little, which is why that swirling barber sign was there for the leeches. Um, Handel's dad really wanted him to study law. And to be a lawyer meant that you know how to get money from people who didn't know the law. And uh, Handel did go to school for law, but he was passionate enough about music that it was all he could do. And um, I think there, there became a case where his father died and he was orphaned, and so he lived with his older brother, so there wasn't as much. And there you are with the biographical scenarios by which someone who would have uh, had a lot of stress on his father to uh, continue law and not go into musical servitude these are the more individual stories when we take a more uh, specialized and biographical approach. But this is big sweeps of history. Trying to understand how we got from, uh, you know, the Reformation to the revolutions. So, I've been continually fascinated with uh, just how not comfortable things were. Things were just not comfortable until a hundred years ago. And then, if you lived in the country then, instead of the city, where, you know, people and communities could either be um, explicitly ignored or explicitly helped simply because of the population. And this is what we're experiencing now, despite the fact that most of us uh, are doing some kind of socially responsible uh, quarantining. And so, just as, just as well in plague times, that smallpox wasn't really understood until the end of the 1700s. And it was the story that it wasn't anything in Europe, the main of Europe, that um, 
the smallpox vaccine came to be. But it was through watching these smallpox parties that the elderly Turkish women would have. They inoculated the, the younger generations from smallpox. And so it was from uh, some English or Italian uh, doctor observing this. So it's, you know, we have to be careful, especially white folks, what kind of credit we give. Because there's often another story from a culture that isn't necessarily as white as us, you know. So there were different uh, conservatisms. People were scared, say, of potatoes because they came from South America and they didn't know whether there was any nutritional value. And the only, the folks who really took a chance on the potatoes were the Irish. And they were in good stead until the uh, potato famine of the 1840s. Tomatoes, the things we call nightshades, are, are not really native to the Mediterranean. Uh, corn from the Americas started growing in certain parts of uh, warmer Europe. And so beforehand, there was, there was not a whole lot of difference between the way that maybe someone like Dolly Parton's family living and etching out their, their means and many of our ancestors in Eastern or Central or even parts of Western Europe, even in France. And the peasant uprisings because they just kept on getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And then, you know, the people who had to have their money and had to have their their standard of living and their luxury and their lifestyles go looking for free labor. This is when you start to put the pieces together, right? Can we start to see that greed and um, the ability to have an easy way to overlord people in order to have vast quantities of something, a resource that people want. So I guess that was on my heart a bunch. Thinking of my ancestors, the little bit I know of them. Oh, when it comes to the Eastern Europe before before 1800, well, you're lucky if you get any records. Very lucky. If you have records, it means they were probably well-to-do, baptized in some Orthodox or otherwise Catholic church, maybe in Poland, or Slovenia in the Austro-Hungarian Habsburg Empire. And, um, yeah, in Northwestern Europe, they there was maybe what we would call uh, an inclination towards innovation. And of course, innovation is a, one of those weird words where like, it's not just good or bad. There were, there were people who were suffering uh, malnutrition, people who can't get where they need to go. And travel was the first thing, the first set of uh, circumstances to think about how anyone is gonna go anywhere muddy, rainy roads in mountains if you think that a trip out to Joshua Tree or out into wherever your wilderness is is rough 
Every, without without a gasoline car with cushy seats, when it's just your donkey or your horse or walking dozens or a couple hundred miles with bandits. You know, some of us in this city are now getting uh, getting our ancestors' anxieties about safety with with more people impoverished being in our plague times. And so I just wanted to have an episode to reflect on the work that I'm doing, pondering my ancestors, pondering their struggles, pondering their greed, pondering where inside myself I can find compassion for my neighbors now in this moment and simply say, yeah, most of our ancestors had it fairly rough. Rough in the country, rough hustling in the cities. And those that didn't have it rough, did they learn how to be a compassionate person or was it just greed or a lack of suffering? same things we see today. That's why people who don't know their history bless their heart. Knowing where we come from is really important. And I think as I come out of winter in my heart and in my head in my mind that this is important stuff where do people get these ideas from? You know, that Joseph, the emperor of Austria in the 1780s, he had his agendas, but he believed in the natural rights of man. Unfortunately, not even in the 1780s, uh, with his predecessor, Empress Maria Theresa, <laughs> a woman on the throne of of the Habsburgs did they give that right to women and it was in this time the 1790s with so much of the world in a tumult that we start getting clearer and more modern ideas of human rights the right to peasants the right to not be taxed till you're broke do not be imprisoned for debt. So, I thank you for joining me in this interim episode. And I thank you for being a friend of this pod, a fairly queer podcast, where sometimes I will give us an interim episode for reflection fascinating topics and ways of getting into these topics that can help us make sense of where we are to bring community and compassion to bring wonderment about what our ancestors have gone through and to really have a perspective that can connect us rather than to distance ourselves from our neighbors 
from where we come from, from where others come from. Thank you for joining me for this historical interlude on a Fairly Queer podcast. If you like these and you have other suggestions, please send me a direct message at handsomejeremy777 on the Instagram or apollo 777 on my extra flirtatious uh, Twitter account. They also have Apollo's Arts and Muses, Handsome Jeremy Musical Oracle on Facebook. And as always, I have uh, my website, my full name, jeremymickish, M-I-K-U-S-H dot com. If you're interested in sound therapies, tarot, or perhaps discussions and other professional uh, inquiries. Thank you all for joining me. And I look forward to bringing Sam on for the next episode of A Fairly Queer Podcast. Till next time, much love, you sparkling unicorns, and bye bye <laughs>